want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark 14, 17 through 31. Mark 14, 17 through 31. So if you've known me for any length of time, uh, you probably know that I coach uh, football and some various sports throughout uh, the seasons, and I love to coach. Um, I'm not a huge sports fan in the essence of watching professional sports. I, I like high school and college. It's kind of fun watching people just go out and play for the love of the game. But I just, I love coaching. I love instructing. I love teaching. I love seeing people go from a place of not knowing how to do something to a, a place of having some confidence in their ability as they walk out onto that field to play whatever sport it is or whether it's uh, teaching people to ski. Um, some of you have experienced that. Some of you have coached before. Some of you may have taught people how to do something in your life, whether it's play a piano or maybe ride a horse or some of the other things that I know people do around here. Maybe it's uh, how to pound a nail. It feels good to teach other people. But there's a process inside of it for coaching that some things don't have to do. It's the tryout phase. It's where they, you know, the kids come in and you, you kind of evaluate them and you see where they're at and you watch them for you know, about a couple hours as they practice and as they play and as they go through and they get a few grounders and you watch them take the grounders for baseball and uh, they swing a few baseball bats and get to hit a couple balls, maybe throw a few pitches, those types of things. And then you go to the draft. And that's a, I hated that period of time when I coached baseball. You walk into the draft and you're like, I've seen these kids like take two grounders, two pop flies and swing a bat four times and now I've got to pick my team? Come on, this is ridiculous. And so you sit down and you pick your team and you kind of know your weaknesses and your strengths that you're going to have on your team. Uh, you've kind of rated the kids as you watched them as they come up and through and you're ready and you get your team together and then you move to practice, right? So, you know, we're coming up to baseball. In fact, our first baseball meeting is coming up next week. And so we get into practice and you start learning what it's like to watch the kids and how they do things and how they play different, sp uh, different places on the field and what they enjoy doing and what they aren't enjoying to do or what they have some basic skill in already and what they need to work on a lot. And you start knowing who they are because you start spending a lot of time with them. You start seeing them practicing those things that you're teaching, you're instructing, that you're coaching them on. And after about two, three months, depending on how long you have for practice before the season rolls in, you get a chance to go to your first game. And the first game, most coaches already know whether or not they're going to win or lose that game. I don't know how many of you realize that, but the coaches walking onto that first game already know whether their team has a chance of winning or whether it's going to be, you know, nope, it's done. It's, it's already over. Not that we take that out and not that we tell the kids that, but we already know that because we've been watching them for the last two months. We know where the weaknesses are. We know where our strengths are. We know where we're going to have difficulties and we know where we're going to have success. And we have waited it out and like we're going to have less success than we're going to have let down. We're not going to win this one. Well, today we're going to kind of see where Jesus is going to do that with his disciples. He's sitting there and he's evaluating what's going on. He's been with them for up to three years, some of them, as they've come along, as they've followed him. He's seen where their strengths are and where their weaknesses are, where they've succeeded in the past and where they've failed. He knows their heart. He knows who they are. But yet, he still walks with them. And like any coach, he's prepared to do the season with the team that he has with him. And whatever the outcome of that season is, he knows that there'll be success because people have learned. People have grown and increased 
like any good coach, he knows that all the work and effort, all the hard time in on the field during practice will pay off in teaching skill for the future. So please rise with me as we read from Mark 14, verses 17 through 31. In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in this dish. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And surely I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had son of him, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet... I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die for you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Let's bow our head in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, today we get to come to your table. We get to commune with you. You know who we are. You know our hearts. You know where we have failed and where we have succeeded and where we will fail and where we will succeed in the future. But even with all that knowledge, you still invite us to the table to join you to remember you, to embrace you, and to confess your truth. Lord, we give thanks for your mercy and your grace upon us. That no matter where we stand or what we have done, you have great plans for us and will draw us forward towards them. Lord, for this we have joy in our hearts and hope for the eternal life that is promised through the Christ on the cross. Amen. Please be seated.
I can't imagine how hard it would have been for Jesus to be sitting and preparing at the table the Passover meal. This was a yearly event that all the Jewish population would have practiced and many would travel many, many miles to come to Jerusalem for it. You were allowed to do it wherever you were living at the time, but it was a, considered a, a necessity to pilgrimage, excuse me, pilgrimage over to Jerusalem at least once in your lifetime, to go to the temple to worship inside the place of the Holies of Holies and to have that meal in Jerusalem. And as he's preparing for this meal, he knows that one is about, to, is about to betray him. I want you to think about it. As you're preparing the Passover meal, this meal that is meant to honor the salvation that God gave the Jewish population up and out of Egypt, to honor God's passing over of their youth while all the other firstborn children, firstborn males died in Egypt. The meal to honor the provision for the 40 years they were in the desert. As you're preparing with this deep thought inside your mind to know that there is one at that table that's about to betray you, would you sit at that table? Would you not challenge that person? Would you not call that person out by name? But Jesus does none of this. He sets the table. He starts the ceremonial supper. Knowing deep down who it is that will betray him. It says there that, As surely I say to you, one of you who eats with me will, be betray, will betray me. God knew what was about to happen. He knew that in that moment of betrayal, he would do what he had to do. He would suffer greatly on the cross. He would be persecuted by the Jews and the Romans alike, by Jew and Gentile. But yet he still goes to that dinner. He still prepares it so that they can do the ritual thing. Even more so, he chose to share community at that moment. He didn't call that one particular person out. He didn't say, no, it's not you and it's not you, as they all said, is it I? Instead, he chose to have community in that moment. So as he goes into the Last Supper, he is sharing it with that who will betray him, who will cause his death on the cross, who will bring him great suffering, yet he still chooses to do it. And he does it with the person. And the interesting thing is, is he doesn't call him out. He just makes the general statement that one of you will betray me. Now there's many thoughts on this. Some people say, well, maybe Jesus had heard rumor that someone had been meeting with the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priest in his court. And we know that Jesus does practice a little bit of latitude on that whole divine knowledge because of what we just studied last week where he says, hey, even I don't know when the last hour will come. So prepare your hearts for it because it may come at any moment. So we know he practices a little bit of, of discretion of how he goes to it. But if Jesus was nothing else 
than someone who knew all things. He was a person who could lead people. We've seen it time and time again in the scriptures. The rich man who he sends away because he knows that until that man gets rid of all of his possessions, he'll never be able to follow him truly. The woman at the well who comes and asks him a question, he calls her out for having multiple husbands and and being in a a non-married relationship. So obviously he can read people, and I'm guaranteeing you as my years as a police officer and my seven years as a detective, three in narcotics and four in general crimes and cold cases, when you interview someone and you plop it down on there like this statement, like, oh, someone has done this. Their eyes will tell you. Their body will tell you. When Jesus is sitting at that table, even if he had been practicing some discretion and not knowing who the specific person is, when he said that word, that one of you will betray me, I guarantee you that the one who had been plotting it, who had already taken measures to get there, which Judas had by this point, his eyes would have told Jesus, his body would have told Jesus, his general behavior would have told Jesus who it was. But yet Jesus does not call him out. He communes with him. He shares this holy of holy dinners to highlight the sacrifice that's about to be made. Just as God saved the Jews from the sacrificial of the taking of the firstborn, Jesus is preparing for them to understand that in the actions that are to come, he is that sacrifice. He is the lamb. He's the bread that is broken and passed out to everyone that they may partake in it. So Jesus moves into the Last Supper, knowing that there's a betrayer sitting with him. And knowing the hearts, he also knows what is to come with Peter and the other disciples about fleeing and stumbling. We'll talk about that when we get to that section. He knows all this. And he starts to explain what is to come. And he uses this beautiful ceremony. I, at, at some point, we're going to get a Seder meal here. I've been trying for the last two years, but unfortunately, the groups that come in and do it want us to have a, a larger body of people. And I haven't been able to partner with enough churches to get that larger body to host it. But I'm working on it because I think it's so important that when we come to this point of communion, when we come and we share the communion to understand what that's based on, what Jesus was truly relating himself to. So this is a seven-course meal that you go through when you sit in it. And I'm not going to try to give all the specifics because I'm not qualified to do so. But there's a few interesting things. So before the meal starts, there's plenty of bread and there's, there's an actual meal. Um, sometimes it's chicken, sometimes it's roasted lamb. It just depends on the family and how it goes. But there's a meal and it goes through. But there are certain things that happen throughout it. There's a eating of the bitter herbs, which are horseradish and some other nasty stuff all mixed together. And when it hits your mouth, it makes you pucker like there's no tomorrow. It's like... And that's to remind them of the trials that they had as slaves and the bitterness that they were removed from. And then there's the, the sweet apple curry that they make that's really, it's, kinda, it's not sweet, sweet, but it, it, it takes away that bitterness and it kind of um, makes the palate come back to a normal side so you can actually enjoy the rest of your meal. To, to remind them of the manna and, and the um, provision that God gave them throughout the joy that they had as they were fleeing from Egypt. There are three pieces of bread, and they go into an envelope. And the envelope has three sections. 
one, two, and three, and they take the middle one and they break it. The middle one gets broke, and part of it gets hidden away, and there's a a little game that they get to play, and whoever finds it, one of the kids, or all the kids get to look for the broken piece of bread, and whoever finds it gets a special treat. This is the bread he says when he breaks it, when he comes into it. What he's doing is he's relating the brokenness of Israel and the separation from God that they'd always experienced when he says that. That's what he's relating his death on the cross, that he will be broken. Remember, there's three slots. One, two, three, the middle one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. One, two, three, the middle one, the Son, gets broken. And part of it's hidden away for those to go search and find him. And those who find him are rewarded. It's not much different than how we approach our faith. For Christ was broken on the cross for us. That's what he's talking about when he says, my body, this is my body broken for you. He's broken before he gets to the cross. He's broken on the cross. What he's doing is he's reminding them that there's a price that needs to be paid for the sin in the world. For the removal of sin, there must be a debt paid. But those who are willing to seek it out, those who are willing to go and try to make it whole, those who are willing to go and put the effort in will be rewarded greatly. More so than those who will not go look. Is that not the sum up of our faith? That each and every day that we go and we seek Jesus Christ, we grow stronger, we go more assured in our faith, our faith grows stronger. Each and every day that we are willfully willing to go out. Willfully willing, that's a great phrase there. We're willing to go out and seek Jesus Christ. It's a day that we're in God's presence. Because how can you not be in his presence if you aren't seeking him? Or if you are seeking him? So as we go through, he's using these lifelong traditions these things that these people have grown up doing every year at Passover, the Thursday before. Every year they had been practicing this. Every year they had been explaining it, and he's relating it anew. He's making them understand what is to come, not just on the cross, but after also. And he takes the wine, and he drinks it, but he does it kind of interesting because when you're at these suppers, you have your own cup. Everyone has their own cup. In fact, you drink, there's anywhere from three to four rounds of wine that you'll drink when you're at one of these. Now, it's not a big cup, and it's not going to get you sitting on your side or falling down as you stand up or anything like that. But it's enough that you get four, three to four of them. And he takes this cup, and instead of sharing or having them drink the toast at that particular time, he passes this one cup. He passes the one cup because he's bringing together a community. He's passing the one cup so that they may share each of the same wine, his blood. The unity in Christ at that moment is shared by all. For this is his blood that will be shed. The remembrance of, of what he does on the cross and what his death actually does. When Paul talks about being united in Christ in one spirit, 
This is what he's talking about. That while we may have separation in who we are as individuals, and while the world may try to separate us in many different things, Christ is the one thing that can unify us. Because we are all the same under Christ. We are all children of God under Christ. We are all equal in God's eyes through Christ. So when he passes that one cup and says, this is my blood shed for you, and each and every one of them drinks from that one cup, they're being united through the blood of Christ. They're being made one through Christ. So even though there is someone who is about to betray him there, and someone that he will tell that is about to deny him three times, he is sharing community. He's choosing to enter into community with a group of believers of him that have followed him, who he knows their weaknesses, he knows their past failures, and he knows where they will fail in the future. And he still chooses to join them in community through him. Knowing that in their fleshliness, in their humanness, they will fail at the time of greatest need. He still chooses to bring them into communion. He still chooses to share his body and his blood with them. Now we understand this as a remembrance not an actual transubstantiation or a, an actual becoming of his blood or his body in this. We do this in remembrance of this moment. And that's what he's doing. He's saying this bread, the symbolic bread that has been, been, been broke by the Jews since the time of the fleeing of Egypt. Every time you do this, remember what I'm about to do for you. What I'm about to go to for you. And every time you raise this last cup, this blessing upon everything that we have been given, remember that it is my blood that allows you to come into Christ, that allows you to come into God's presence, that allows you to be saved. So every time you do this, every time you come into this, realize that I am the lamb and that God will pass over his wrath on you because of me. Because you are mine. We are in communion together. And he moves on after giving these basic instructions. He says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is an interesting turn of events. Less than a week ago, he was hailed as a king ready to conquer and come in. People were raising up the roof for him in Jerusalem. They were laying down their coats and laying palms down in a sense of bringing royalty into the city. And here he is saying that, listen, what is about to happen will make each and every one of you stumble. And I don't mean walking down the path and not looking and, and catching your foot and stumbling. This is a deep spiritual stumbling. That each and every one of them will be challenged in a way that will make them stumble spiritually to turn away from God, to denounce their faith, denounce what they believe, or to run in outright fear instead of just accepting what is coming and to being bold in who God is. He just shared a supper with these people. The 12 disciples 
had just broken bread with him, had just shared wine with him, had just ate with him, had reclined at the table with him. And I can tell you, if you've never experienced it, try it sometime. Go to a true Middle Eastern restaurant where the tables are about knee high and you sit on a bench that's about knee high and you recline through your meal and you just socialize. It's a beautiful thing to just enjoy a meal where you're not rushed. A meal will commonly take two to three hours in these types of environments where everybody just shares each other's day with each other and they kind of get to know each other and they share communion with each other in a deep and, and true sense of that word because they are sharing each other's lives with each other. See, I know that's kind of a weird statement inside our concepts because even Thanksgiving meals are rushed to get to the game, right? Let's get the food done so we can go watch the game. Every night at our house, we get to the table and we rush through it normally because we have so many other things going on. But here it's common for two to three hours in a meal. We see it in other countries too. But for our, memor- for our mind, it's hard to picture because we're always in such a rush to get on to that next event or that next thing that fulfills my wants or our wants. But here, they just spent two to three hours sharing a meal, sharing each other's lives, reclining next to each other, relaxing, just being together. But even after that, he sits there and says, hey, listen, what's about to happen is going to be some serious stuff. And it's going to make you stumble. It's not what you're expecting. It's not what you want. But hey, there's hope after it. And even after you stumble, he will rise. Jesus says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. That's kind of a beckoning call, right? If I sit there and tell you, hey, I'm going to go down this direction. Come with me. Right? I'm going to go and prepare something down there. Come along a little bit later. That's exactly what he's saying in those words. He's preparing their next step. And he's saying, even though you will stumble, I still have a purpose for you. I still have a mission I'm going to draw you in. I'm still going to go before you and prepare for that so that's a success. He hasn't abandoned them. He's not saying they're saying, I'm going to leave you out there. It's much like a coach. Yeah, we got beat this, this game. We, we had a hard go at it. But hey, this week we're going to work on a few things and we're going to see if we can't come out stronger next week. He's letting them know that even though this is about to happen, he hasn't lost faith in them. He hasn't put them aside. He hasn't sat there and lost hope in who they will be and what they will become. Now Peter, I would have loved to have met Peter. He seems kind of strong-willed, kind of like me probably. He says, even if all are made to stumble... Yet, I will not be. Man, to have that assurance in your life that, hey, these 10 guys, these 11 guys over here, even though they're all going to be ate up and no good and they're going to fail you, not me, Jesus. I got you. How would you like to have that assurity in yourself? Not sure that's a good thing, right? That's a lot of pride that he's sitting there with. But Jesus Christ, and he says, surely I say to you that today, even this night, so Peter, because of your pride, you're going to be the first to go. It's going to happen to you first, buddy. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times.
Peter's pride kicks in more vehemently. He says, well, if, if I have to die for you, I will, not die. I will not deny you. One thing I learned as a detective, the more vehemently someone defends themselves in something, the more guilty they are. It truly is that statement. The more someone says, oh, it couldn't be me. That's, uh, no way. And they get upset and they get angry. The more guilty they are. In fact, that's when I started digging even more. I'm like, oh yeah, I got the right person. Let's go get the evidence to do this, right? It's because of our pride. We don't want to be caught. We don't want to be known for those failures. We don't want to be known for what we did wrong or the bad thing that's sitting on the table in front of us. And instead of just fessing up and taking our licks for it, we, we dig in even deeper to sit there and, and, and try to get that person to come off of their truth. But Jesus knows the truth of the situation. He knows the heart of Peter. He knows that, <coughs> that Peter's pride is going to cause him some issues. His, his tenacity, we might call it nowadays, his you know, over-eagerness to be this, you know, the, the, the disciple of all the disciples will be what causes him to fall the most because it's his pride that's going to feed him into failure. Because it's prepping his heart for the day that when someone actually puts him on there where he might have to put more skin on the game, to go out there and actually get the job done himself versus relying on everybody else around him to get the job done. His pride will stand up and go, you know what? I don't want to fail. I don't want that on my record, so I'm going to back off. I don't want to pay that price. Gives us a chance to do a heart check. How often do we do that to God? Oh, God, I'm just not trained to do that. That's pastor's job. I can't possibly do that. Instead of just going where God leads you, and trusting in God that he will get you to where you need to be. That's exactly what's happening to Peter right here. Now, Peter was the first to speak up. All the rest of them started speaking up too. It's, oh, it's not me. I won't fail you. I think a lot of times we do that in our lives too, right? God, I love you and I, I care for you. I won't fail you. But he knows our hearts. He knows the the dark times that we've come through and the times that we, we haven't been able to answer up to that which we've called forth and said, hey, I got this. He knows our failures. But the thing is, is he keeps all of them in his presence. While all of them deny that they're going to stumble, all of them he knows will stumble, he knows one of them's about to betray him to the cross, he still keeps them all in their presence. He keeps them together because he understands one thing. He understands that through him they're each able to be strong. That each of them will grow into what he wills them to be. He understands that through the trials that are about to come, the difficulties that they're going to have, and even their stumblings and their betrayals, there's still hope through it all. Because he knows that he'll be raised. He knows that he'll go to Galilee. And he knows that he's preparing the way for them to be successful. He doesn't leave them on the side. He doesn't sit there and say, well, you know what? Just because this is going to happen, you're all unworthy. Stay behind. No, he tells them where he'll go after so that they may follow him as they have been doing for three years. They aren't fearful, or he's not fearful of what they're about to do or their failures that will come. He's hopeful in who they'll become in him. That as they go through those trials, they'll have him as a sounding board. They'll have him as an anchor, and they will grow through that experience. Now, we'll talk about Judas when we get to that later on, not today, but later uh, next week. 
Judas is the only one who never repents of his actions. But the rest of them all do. And the rest of them all choose to follow on. See, Jesus' knowledge of their heart lets them know that even though they will stumble, they will still stand up and they will still follow me. How many of us have had that struggle in our lives? How many of us have come to that point where we know that we face a trial, we know that we've stumbled through it, we know that we've failed at the base of it, but we're still willing to pick ourselves up and follow Christ through it all? Or how many of us fall prey like Judas and because of our shame and our guilt for what has happened, we can't come to a place of asking God to forgive us? So while Peter may have denied Jesus at a critical time, at least he was willing to follow on and continue on in the mission that he was given. Judas, will learn, wasn't able to do that. His shame and his guilt crushed him. But that's where our hope comes in. For Jesus knows our hearts. He knows how we have and will fail him. Yet, he still calls us to the table with him and has great plans for each and every one of us. All we have to be able to do is understand that he has gone before us and that he has laid the path for us to follow. He has called us to a place. The disciples were told, I'm calling you to Galilee. This is where I'm going. Come to me. And all of this will be behind us and we'll step out on a new foot, on a new path that I will lead you down. Each and every one of us has that challenge each and every day of our lives. For each and every day we find ourselves struggling, maybe stumbling before God. But instead of letting that get us down, instead of that being what roots us to the ground, we turn our heads to the heavens and we pursue and we move to where God has gone, where Jesus has gone the kingdom and we start moving our life in that direction and even though we may stumble every once in a while we pick ourselves up we dust ourselves off and we continue down that path to move towards his kingdom versus allowing ourselves to fall down further i've coached baseball for eight years now football for five i've had a lot of players at very young ages all the way up through middle school have come in with big voices, with Peter's voice. Surely not I. I won't fail you. I've got this, coach. Sure you do. The players I love are the players who are like, man, I'm going to bust my butt each and every day I'm out there. I'm going to practice as if the game is going right now, and I'm going to play the game like I practiced. I'm going to give you my all, and I'm going to come off this field, and I'm going to collapse from exhaustion. And the funny thing is, is you'll see that in fourth graders all the way up through whatever level they're playing. And those are the players that coaches love because those are the players you can build a team around. How many of you have seen Rudy? Yep, it's an older movie. If you're a little bit younger, you might not have catch it. It's a story I can't, um, the name's escaping me right now. But he plays in, his dream is to play for Notre Dame. He comes from a blue-collar family. There's really no hope. He's not got great grades, so he goes and he does some um, college work at a, um, a less, uh, what's it, I can't remember what the name of the schools are back in those days, but uh, at a community college type school. And he goes and he gets his grades and he gets into Notre Dame and he doesn't even get accepted, but he goes and he finally plays. He doesn't play a single play the entire 
career until his last game because all the players literally walk out of the coach's office and toss their jersey on there and say, hey, let Rudy play for me. You know why? Because his heart was in the game. He loved what he did. And even though he failed, and even though he wasn't the best person on that field, every player knew that his heart was in the game more than even their own. Jesus understood that about each and every one of the disciples. He understood that their heart was in the game, and even though they may fail, even though we may fail, if our heart's in the game, he's going to keep on giving us that opportunity, and everybody around us is going to see that. That's every coach's dream. That's Jesus' dream for us. Is that no matter how many times we get knocked down, no matter how many times we stumble, no matter how many times we fail and we miss the, miss the grounder or miss the tackle or drop the pass, no matter how many times we fail, that we still pick ourselves up and pursue what he has called us to pursue. And the beauty is, is he calls us into it through communion. He is with us in those moments when we fail and in our success. He is with us in each of those moments. Because he has great plans for us and he refuses to fail us. He didn't fail us going to the cross. He didn't fail us in the resurrection. He will not fail us now. For his will is strong. And he has set aside all the sacrifices. He has set aside all the temptation so that we may be made whole in the Father's eyes. By his faithfulness, by his heart, we receive hope. So as we come to the communion table today, prepare your hearts knowing that we've failed, we've made mistakes, but he is still calling us forth to follow him to Galilee, to continue on with the mission that he has set forth before us, to stand up and dust ourselves off, be made whole through him through the one cup to be united into the body of Christ as we remember the body that was broken for our sacrifice so that we may not pay the debt of our sins that we may be called children of God again if I could have the ushers come forward I'm going to allow for some personal reflection time. So when you come up, take the bread, take the juice, go back, sit and pray, and then take it as a family or a, as an individual. But take some time to reflect. Reflect on where God is calling you, not on the failures of the past, but where God is moving you forward, where he's giving you hope in your life. That he didn't go to the cross so that we may die here. No, he went to the cross so that we may have everlasting life and eternity to be made children of God so that we could live up, not live down. Please stand forward and come forward.